This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. Every day we're bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance, plus technology, politics, so much going on in the world of politics, economics, and it's all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Joining us for our daily check on COVID-19, back with us and delighted to have her back with us is Dr. Joanne Roberts. She's Chief Value Officer at Providence St. Joseph Health. They are one of the largest healthcare systems in the U.S., and they have about 51 hospitals, seven states they are in, and more than 800 clinics and about 115,000 caregivers. And she joins us on the phone from Washington. Dr. Roberts, so nice to have you here with us. How are you doing? I'm well, Carol. I'm well. I'm, I'm excited to get the news along with your, your audience about the vaccine. So we're, we're, we're all hopeful. As, as one of us said today, we're, we may be at the point of looking at uh, COVID like it's D-Day. Well, and this is what it comes down to. And I think a lot of us have had conversations, Dr. Roberts, is that at least we start to feel like we can see some visibility about how this rolls out potentially. Um, this is good news. Talk to us a little bit more, though, about the news from Moderna, the news from Pfizer one week ago, because when uh, Stefan Bonsal, the CEO of Moderna, says their results, preliminary analysis, suggest it's 94.5% effective, those 90% plus rates, that's significant. It is. It is. And as, as you say, um, these are both both the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine. Um, the news is coming through press releases, and we have no reason to doubt them. I mean, we're all very optimistic about this, but um, they still have to be uh, looked at by the FDA panels on vaccine safety and just to see what the real truth is and the science behind those press releases. But I think it's all for the good. And um, right. Yeah. It's a journey. It's a step forward, I guess, is how you see it uh, and how most of us see it. But what's interesting is we still, and we're going to talk a little bit later uh, about this on our broadcast, that um, good news, but yet we still have to figure out how long the immunity or the protection lasts. We know that there are still populations out there. Um, I was talking to someone who actually has cancer and saying, you know, I'm not going to be one of those people they're going to give it to because we just don't know how it might impact me as I am undergoing my treatment. There are still a lot of questions out there. There certainly are, and we're going to have to, as we have since this um, pandemic began in China, uh, we're going to have to learn our way through the next few months or even years. Um, So folks who are worried about getting the vaccine today, once the vaccine's been on the market for six months, say, we'll have more knowledge about its safety and its efficacy. So maybe that worry will decline over time. So talk to me a little bit, if I may. I am curious. We mentioned Washington State was at the center of the virus in the U.S. from day one. We are, again, seeing a spike in cases. Uh, as we know, I think Governor uh, Jay Inslee over the weekend announcing a four-week statewide set of restrictions in response to the recent rapid spread of COVID uh, in Washington and really across the country. So tell us what you're seeing and your teams are seeing right now. Because they've, and I, I can only imagine that when you're starting another wave, um, it's stressful and it's difficult. It is difficult. And what we're seeing is what you're, you're seeing is in our where we're seeing the biggest outbreaks right now are in our more rural parts of our system, mm-hmm. eastern Washington versus the Puget Sound uh, 
is much higher right now. Uh, West Texas is very high. Alaska is very high. Oregon is very high. Um, in contrast, the Seattle area and Los Angeles um, seem to be holding okay. I mean, they're on a rise, but not quite to the rise of some of our rural areas. What do you think that is? I think that people are taking it very seriously. I mm-hmm. do. I think local local leaders, school boards, governors are really taking this very seriously. And, and um, Governor Inslee um, decided to go into action pretty early so that we can blunt that that spike we're seeing in eastern Washington and really stop it from being a major spike. Well, and it's and then in the rural areas, why do you think it's we're having problems there? Oh, well, I think it's what we've been talking about all along, Carol. It's, mm. it's um, they've been a little less likely uh, to adopt masking and distancing um, circumstances. Uh, hopefully, we are moving now away from the political turmoil around safety and more into a scientific uh, way of thinking. And I think. You know, if you look across the country, I, I'm really optimistic, but all of mm-hmm. our governors now seem to be taking this very seriously. You know, and I'm curious what you think. Um, you know, we're waiting the president-elect Joe Biden to make some comments uh, at any moment on the economy specifically, uh, but his team has come down and said that they don't anticipate making any kind of universal uh, lockdown at this point. How do you see it? You know, you and your teams are on the front lines, and I do wonder do you think that that makes any kind of sense at this point uh, in terms of trying to get ahead of the virus? Well, I think that what uh, President-elect Biden is trying to say is he, he plans to use the bully pulpit rather than try to force you know, mandates, uh, which would end up in court. But imagine what a president can do if the president were simply urging us to let's all pull together and protect one another as a country because we're all one nation and we're all one large community. That that will carry a lot of weight mm-hmm. with Americans, I believe. Yeah, I mean, we've, listen, I know we've had many conversations with you and it's, you know, not just about keeping yourself safe, but it's the whole idea of masks was really keeping others safe, right? And having a sense of community. Yes, it's our neighbors. And, you know, it, let's we can put aside the political party for a while and just say we are all Americans and we all are committed to protecting one another. Dr. Roberts, one thing I wanted to ask you, and this was something uh, my colleague Charlie Pellet mentioned and uh, my uh, co-host Jason Kelly used to talk about, that the importance of schooling uh, and getting people back to schools, which would allow people to get back to work, which would help reopen the economy. Schools, we've seen some great success stories um, and we've seen some some failures. Do you think the reopening of schools has created a problem and helped create that second wave when it comes to the virus? I do worry about that. Mm. Um, we know that children can be infected and, and have almost no symptoms. And so if those kids come home to their parents or even worse, their grandparents who might be fairly ill chronically, um, that just that just spreads the the illness further. And, you know, it's funny, as we look now to the next six, eight months and see that there's going to be um, vaccines as part of our armamentarium, it does make me wonder, couldn't, do we need to rush to open our schools, especially as the holidays approach? 
Yeah, I know. And I'm, it's interesting, we're seeing with a lot of schools, uh, potentially in this area, like kind of re or thinking about the holidays. And, and I know my own daughter's school is having the kids stay home a week after Thanksgiving. And then during the holiday break in December that they too again will be home for two weeks after the break just to make sure and uh, make sure that uh, nobody comes back to school uh, with the virus. Um, Tell me what we have learned Dr. Roberts in the past six to seven months. Man when this all hit back in February, March, April we didn't have the playbook and I know we've talked about this with you and we have definitely have a better playbook now when it comes to treating patients that have uh, COVID-19, different forms of treatment. Tell us what we have learned so that when a patient does ultimately get hospitalized, you know, how things hopefully have improved in terms of what kind of treatments are out there and hopefully that has improved their ultimate outcome. Well, Carol, we've learned a whole lot. Mm -hmm. We've learned a tremendous amount about prevention. So we've talked about that. masking, distancing. Um, we have learned a whole lot about treatment uh, with remdesivir, uh, with uh, corticosteroids uh, for very sick patients in the hospital, um, nursing procedures to keep people breathing more effectively um, just by their posture uh, in the hospitals and even at home. And now we're able to treat more patients at home so that we don't have to hospitalize them at all. Is that, where kind of, uh, is now, that kind of where telehealth is coming in? It is. It is. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have been doing a lot of home monitoring of patients who are pretty symptomatic, but wow. we, we, can, we can monitor their oxygen level at home, and if it starts to deteriorate, we can get them to the hospital right away. Uh, saves the hospitals yeah. and keeps patients where they feel much safer. Well, that. I mean, that's I mean, we, we that, all feel safer at home, don't we? Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> but it's so key because I think one of the things we've talked about is you have those case numbers, right? And as they start to grow, the reason we all get nervous, and understandably so, is that those cases can quickly turn into hospitalizations that can quickly really stress a healthcare system. And so that's really fascinating to hear increasingly how you're able to have patients still stay at home, monitor them, right? But this way you don't kind of further tax the existing healthcare system and can kind of save it for those who really need it. Exactly, exactly. I, one thing so I want I'm, I'm, I, yeah, I, I just want to say, I, mean, yeah. I think we have, we have learned an amazing amount of an, about a new disease in a very short amount of time. And I think we should pause and think about that. You know, we know, what, we know what, how to prevent it. We're learning better how to treat it. And now we're uh, figuring out how to vaccinate against it. Pretty impressive in less than a year. Yeah, it's really fascinating. We've been having some conversations with global leaders like yourself. And that whole idea of is there something that we will walk away with this that is kind of a bigger payoff in, in terms of tackling some of the world's really tough medical problems and health ailments and is there a way to just think about a vaccine development right normally a decade we've reduced it to a year and some people have said we could even reduce it even more um, by taking steps today and so i do wonder how you think about the long-term impact of all of this well i think we'll have to debrief it um we're still in the middle of it uh, and and i don't want to be overly optimistic because we still have many months of this pandemic to go um, but as, as it starts to settle down later in 2021, maybe the second half of 2021, I think it behooves our Centers for Disease Control, our public health agencies, mm. the World Health Organization, really to debrief 
what did we do well and what did we what do we need to learn so that we can do better the next time because there will be another one this is this won't be the last well and that's a really good point i mean what do you think we've done well what do you think we could have done just so much better on well i think uh the science has moved much faster than i expected it to move and i I mean I, i do think these vaccines coming so quickly and with new technology new vaccine technology that's been amazing. Um, I think, you know, I think our, our national leadership has, has not been what it could be. Mm-hmm. I don't think we're alone. I think many of our, many of our um, fellow countries leaders have not stepped up, but some have, but some have. Yeah, no, it's, it's fascinating that you say that. And I was having a conversation um, with someone very key and high up when it comes to China's handling of COVID and basically saying, we we took a lot of steps where we could lock down people and we're doing the contact tracing and doing all of the testing. And yet we still continue to have some cases that come out. So there's quite a spectrum, right, in terms of how uh, the playbooks that various nations dealt with it. But even so, it's been just a difficult virus to contain. So I want to just go back for a moment and then we'll wrap up um, in just a moment, too. But that whole reminder, as you said, we will have more pathogens, more viruses that we're going to have to deal with. And it's still a while before we get through this one. Yes, it is. It is. And remember, we're not that far away from the H1N1 flu epidemic um, during the Obama administration. So we can expect that there will be more. Maybe the next one won't be quite so deadly as COVID. But mm-hmm. these new viruses that are emerging um, I think we have to think of them as a way of life, um, as Bill Gates has talked about um, as well, that every few years we'll see something new come up and we'll have to be even more ready for it the next time. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, one thing I did want to ask you, forgive me, I thought I was, I thought I was done, but I'm not. <laughs> the supply <laughs> chains, have they gotten better in terms of access to equipment and things that you need? As of today, I, yes, I, uh, we are. We do a lot of uh, um, predictive analytics, and uh, we are. We have been predicting this surge for probably six months. Mm. We knew this would be a bad winter. Uh, right now, we feel like we have enough PPE. We have enough ventilators. Um, not sure about hospital beds and staffing. I think that depends on how we use our hospitals. Um, but I think as best we can predict, we're in pretty good shape, pretty good shape. All right, we're going to leave it on that note. Listen, I thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Joanne Roberts, Chief Value Officer at Providence St. Joseph Health, massive healthcare system, one of the largest in the United States, uh, joining us on the phone from Seattle. Um, and they, their $25 billion system includes about 51 hospitals, seven states, more than 800 clinics, and about 115,000 caregivers. And as I mentioned, they really were at the center of the virus in the United States from day one, uh, and once again are dealing with a spike uh, in states. But as we mentioned, uh, we definitely have a bit of a playbook now. And we've learned how to deal with patients who come down with the coronavirus. Uh, And she talked a lot about keeping patients at home and being able to monitor them, especially those that are asymptomatic. uh, And so that you can kind of save uh, the systems, the healthcare systems, the healthcare facilities and the healthcare professionals uh, in the hospital for those that are the most serious cases. So uh, good to get a check in with her, especially on a day where we're watching Moderna so so closely, uh, and it is spiking uh, because of its upbeat 
COVID-19 vaccine news. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. And we did mention at the top of our broadcast that there is a fair amount of investor enthusiasm today over Moderna's COVID-19 vaccine. And just one week ago, we saw the same kind of reaction, although a little bit more, I would say. Uh, We had quite a rally when we heard about Pfizer's virus vaccine progress. Not to be a Debbie Downer here, but as Bloomberg News Health reporter James Patton points out, the remarkable vaccine results leave a lot of questions still unanswered. Uh, James joining us on the phone in London, along with Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber on the phone in Brooklyn. Joel, I'm not trying to be a Debbie Downer, but even with this news, we realize there's still a lot we got to get through. Yeah. And, you know, the, uh, James uh, and Bob Langworth wrote this story actually just sort of right off the heels of the Pfizer news. And, mm-hmm. and then the Moderna stuff happened today, obviously. And, and I still think that if all the stuff that they raised in their story remains relevant today. Totally. And, and, you know, the one that I think is the elephant in the room is, is, is one that I think, Carol, just playing off of what you just said, I mm-hmm. think everyone is really interested in, which is how long will this efficacy last? Um, right. So I'll kick it over to Mr. Patton with that. What other question? Let, let's talk about that question. But mm-hmm. I'm also interested in the other unknowns that, um, you know, we as journalists are, are asking about um, and will continue to ask about as the, the race for a vaccine continues. So, James, tell us about all of that. Is James with us? No. Oh. Yeah, can you, can you hear yeah. me? Okay? Oh, we do. Yep, thanks. Just a little okay. technical snafu. So, you know, That's right. Joe brought up some really good points. I mean, the efficacy, uh, how long it lasts if we get a vaccine, that's one of the big ones. Talk about that and, and James, some of the other things that you guys wrote about. Well, as Joel mentioned, you know, one of the big questions is how long that protection is going to last. We we simply don't know the answer to that or when the uh, immunity could wear off. Uh, so we don't know how often people may need to get booster shots down the road. That's a significant um, question. Um, researchers are, um, you know, also waiting for more data on the vaccine's ability to prevent not just serious illness, but infections and to stop people from passing it on to others. Um, so, you know, we've seen two press releases from uh, from Pfizer uh, and its German partner, BioNTech, and now from Moderna. Uh, and, you know, these are hugely promising and the, the results are extraordinary. Um, but we don't you know, have all the data yet that experts need to um, to assess these products. They're still waiting for some key uh, safety data. The people who um, ultimately receive the vaccines will need to be uh, tracked, you know, for many months uh, to monitor safety. So, um, you know, there are, you know, not to mention the issues. I mean, you were talking about vaccine hesitancy. Mm-hmm. How many people are actually going to take vaccines once they're rolled out? the production and logistics storage distribution all of those uh all of those issues remain so uh, again you know we have to keep in mind that what we're seeing in the past week is a big turning point and and this is really positive uh, news but we still have to uh we still have to wait to get answers to a bunch of these questions Okay, James, I want to ask um, specifically just, um, you know, we had the Pfizer stuff last week. We've had the Moderna stuff today. I'm I'm wondering um, how much we should be reading into the differences between those two vaccines so far, since that's, you know, one of those other questions that (laughs) remains sort of um, unanswered, but very of the moment. How, How are you looking at the differences between them? 
Yeah, well, it's a good it's a good question. I mean, um, the the obvious um, similarity is that both of these rely on uh, you know this novel technology known as messenger uh, RNA. Uh, so you know that is a uh, an approach that's never been used before to develop uh, an approved vaccine, and um, you know a number of others are using very different approaches. Uh, but one of the um, uh, the things they actually have in common is many of these. Uh, vaccines under development are targeting, uh, you know, everyone's heard of the spike protein now, um, and that actually bodes well for uh, many of the others as well, like AstraZeneca uh, and its partner, um, University of Oxford, that are going to have uh, data coming uh, coming soon. But there is also a difference, uh, distinction between the uh, Pfizer and Moderna's uh, Moderna vaccines in terms of, uh, in terms of storage. And so that is... Um, uh, you know, that's another another one that people are going to be closely um, following because um, that could, you know, especially in the case of the, um, the Pfizer vaccine, that could uh, could slow things down a bit. Well, and this, actually, just to be very yeah, specific, though, yeah, James, no, like, tell us tell us about the specific differences there, because the Pfizer one obviously requires a cold storage <laughs> that's colder, colder than my fridge. <laughs> Yeah, exactly, exactly. So um, basically, today, what was interesting is, and this is a this is a positive um, uh, a positive development. The um, the company pointed to data that basically shows that the vaccine is stable at refrigerator temperatures for thirty days. Now that is uh, much longer than previously estimated, and that is very important because of those storage and distribution. Uh, issues that we're talking about that are seen as big challenges. So, you know, Pfizer's vaccine needs to be stored at these, like, ultra-cold temperatures until a few days before it's used. Um, and so those are important distinctions between the uh, two. I think in the case of the Moderna vaccine, it can be kept in freezers, though um, it doesn't need, um, you know, it doesn't need the same kind of facilities that the, that the right. Pfizer vaccine will, uh, will, will need ultimately. So, so that's, a big, um, uh, that's a big issue. Uh, uh, down the track. James, one of the parts of your of your and, and uh, Bob's story that I find fascinating is like, let's not forget that governments have been making deals with pharmaceutical companies about who gets what and how much. And I, I can just see like the stories in the future, like you're in this country, great, you're set. If you're in this country, not so much. Like I can just see it, how it's going to play out. I mean, that's a big part of this. Absolutely. That's going to be a big that's going to be a big, big issue. We've seen um, the U.S. and the European Union um, and the U.K., you know, where I am, um, those um, uh, governments have been, you know, particularly aggressive in signing advanced deals with all the manufacturers. So, you know, in recent months, we've seen, uh, you know, just a string of, uh, of supply deals. And that's, you know, that's sparked a lot of concern uh, in the rest of the world, um, you know, worries that um, that other countries will be left behind. But there are, you know, huge efforts underway led by uh, WHO and Gavi and and, um, and others uh, on a program to sort of ensure the uh, equitable distribution of vaccines um, all over the planet, you know, to both rich and poor countries. But um, clearly, uh, you know, the U.S., EU, the U.K., uh, especially, uh, you know, are in a, are in a pretty good position here because they've, they've done deals in the case of, of the, uh, U.S. Um, you know, they've, um, funded a lot of these, um, vaccines, although Pfizer has said that, um, it didn't get any, 
any funding to develop the vaccine. So, um, you know, that's going to that's going to yeah. be really interesting to to watch that play out. James, you cover this day in, day out um, for months now. <laughs> I'm curious, what are yeah. the unanswered questions that, that you're still in, intrigued by that we haven't touched on yet? Yeah, so, I mean, um, I think the we have touched on some of the, you know, some of the big ones. Um, I think in general, you know, coming up with a vaccine would be would be a huge feat. But then just the broader deployment, you know, when it comes to, vaccinating hundreds of millions of people or possibly uh, several billion people uh, around the world. I mean, that is going to be a massive challenge. I mean, we haven't gotten into really the, the issue of, um, of hesitancy. Um, it's a volatile one in some areas of the world. You know, we've seen, uh, we see support in other places, you know, polls show like maybe only half of, of some populations will um, support a COVID vaccine. There's a lot of um, a concern about, you know, political interference and just the sheer, um, you know, the pace at which all of these vaccines are, are moving ahead. Uh, and that is, uh, that's making people nervous. So it's not just the traditional, you know, anti-vaccine movement we're talking about, but, but broader, uh, you know, broader doubts. Um, so I think, I think that is going to be, you know, a lot of the focus is going to start to shift to that and public education and, and how, uh, you know, health um, right. uh, authorities and governments and companies can get people on board. Right. It's going to be education or it's going to be ho- cold, hard cash, as Peter Coy wrote about for Bloomberg yeah. Business Week about, you know, making the case for paying people to get a COVID-19 vaccine. I mean, I don't know what you're hearing, but I do wonder, uh, James, if it's going to come down to something like that. Yeah, well, it's it's interesting. I mean, there and there's been there's been a, a, a debate over like mandates, for instance. You know, should people mm-hmm. be like whether it's healthcare workers or others, should people be required um, to take a vaccine? And, and you know, at least some of the people I've talked to and some of the research I've looked at indicates that um, you know that that's not uh, that that's not a good idea. That the best thing you can do is to um, you know persuade people uh, to do it because it's the right thing to do. Because ultimately. This is what is going to um, to stop the virus, right? If you if you have uh, uh, you know if the virus continues to circulate in some parts of the world, then uh, you know a lot of these these vaccine advocates point out then that, that everyone's vulnerable because the virus can continue to to spread. So uh, if you have a, a vaccine, you know if these vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna um, ultimately deliver you know, and are more than ninety percent effective. Obviously, that's going to be a huge, um, you know, a huge plus, right? Because um, mm-hmm. part of uh, hesitancy will boil down to how good the vaccines are, right? If if, if we're talking about a, a vaccine that's seen as highly effective and safe, that's definitely going to boost uh, up. It can have a, you know, have a positive, uh, play a positive role. Right. Maybe a world where, you know, we're taking multiple vaccines, different vaccines. I mean, I know from everyone I've been talking to, including the Moderna CEO and also a key uh, individual over in China. I mean, the expectations, we just got off with Dr. Roberts out on the West Coast out in, in uh, Seattle, Washington, which is really ground zero or where the first case of COVID was. I mean, we are going to be dealing with this for some time. And so it's going to take a while. And so the kind of rolling out of vaccines or multiple vaccines, it's really going to be, James, ultimately quite a process. Definitely, definitely. And even if we have, you know, you alluded to it, but even if we have a vaccine, uh, 
that's approved before the end of the year, which would be, you know, a remarkable um, uh, accomplishment given this virus, you know, only emerged within the past year. I mean, this would smash all records for vaccine development. Um, but if we, even if we have that, you know, that doesn't mean that the pandemic, uh, you know, will end overnight, obviously, right? I mean, all these measures like masks and social distancing and, and other, you know, public health tools, uh, you know, according to, uh, to, to many of the, the specialists we're talking to, the public health experts are saying that, you know, those are going to have to remain in place for quite some time to uh, to control this virus. So, um, you know, this is this is hugely positive and encouraging news of the past week, but we just have to uh, have to keep in mind, um, you know, all those questions that remain. Hey, James, you know, we've talked, you know, one week ago, we were talking so much about Pfizer. Um, we've obviously talked a lot about what's been going on in the UK as well. Moderna today. What other companies are kind of on your radar when it comes to vaccines um, that are going to be that are going to really be crucial in the COVID-19 fight? Yeah, well, focus now is on is on those companies. The next one to keep an eye on is AstraZeneca. I think mm. I mentioned it earlier, but um, uh, AstraZeneca, the UK uh, drug makers, working with uh, Oxford University, which at one point was seen as, as probably like the front runner globally. It yeah. slipped a bit because its trial was uh, halted um, in the U.S. Uh, for um, several several weeks, actually. Um, but they're going to have data uh, soon, um, so they could be uh, next. Uh, the next one to look at. Um, obviously, the pressure's on now, given these given these two um, you know back to back positive results. Um, so they'll be a key one. And then beyond that, you know, are um, there are dozens of, of others around the world? I mean, Johnson and Johnson uh, and Merck, uh, you know, big U.S. Um, pharma companies are ones to watch. Uh, and there are a bunch of companies too, like um, GlaxoSmithKline, Sanofi, the French um, pharmaceutical giant, right. um, that have um, interesting plans in the works. And, and a lot of these companies too are hoping, um, even if they're not the first vaccines or among the first couple of vaccines, they're hoping to play uh, play a role in kind of the second generation of vaccines um, uh, and, and potentially looking at uh, looking at the longer term. So uh, you know, those are probably um, you know, the next ones that are that are on our minds. Hey, w- one last question. Uh, I just have to ask you, whatever sure. happened uh, just quickly to the Chinese and uh, Russian vaccines? Yeah, well, um, you know, we tend to focus so much on the on the U.S. and European uh, uh, vaccines. But, um, you know, our colleagues, um, uh, you know, in Asia and in Russia have been have been all over you know, covering uh, covering those vaccines as well, mm-hmm. and we don't have as much. You know, the data from Russia, for instance, um, is pretty limited. But um, but we shouldn't you know we shouldn't underestimate um, you know the Russians or the Chinese here. I mean, uh, the Chinese have uh, have a number of candidates that are in late stage uh, testing that have already you know, they're already being rolled out um, pretty aggressively. Um, so. We, uh, yeah, we'll just have to keep a close eye on that. But, but the Russians as well um, have had some uh, promising data out recently. I think it's based on you know a limited uh, number of, um, of uh, participants and people thus far. But um, you know, but there could be uh, you know there could be multiple um, vaccines that um, that are ultimately successful. And you know, many people point out that you know to to, to beat this uh, uh, crisis, we'll we'll need. Yeah. Uh, a number of vaccines as well. 
Well, we're going to leave it there, James, but thank you so much. Your reporting and the reporting that we've been doing here at Bloomberg News, the whole team really has given us all a front row seat to this process and really given us so much insight about what it takes uh, to create a vaccine of this magnitude. James Patton, he's health reporter at Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone from London. Our thanks to Jill Weber as well, editor at Bloomberg Business Week on the remote access from Brooklyn. I'm driving in my car, I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, just under 10 minutes left in today's trading session. I'm Carol Master in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. It is time for the drive to the close. And back with us is Alan Zafrin, founding partner and co-CEO at IEQ Capital, joining us on this Monday on the phone from Palo Alto, California. Alan, nice to have you here. Just uh, a little while ago, uh, Charlie Pellet really bringing our attention to some of the headlines coming out of the state of California and the California governor talking about, once again, considering covid curfews, uh, once again, talking about uh, the 14-day positivity rate, 4.6%, up from 3.2% on November 2nd. Uh, Also talking about, you know, 94% of the state rolling back to the most restrictive rules. So there's a lot going back, you know, we take some steps forward, and then we take another step back. How do you see what's happening in California, what's happening around the country? How will that ultimately translate itself into what happens in our economy, what happens at companies and what happens in the financial markets? Hey, Carol. Um, Sorry, that was a big one. It's it's a busy Monday. (laughs) Um, How are you? I'm doing great. I give credit (laughs) to California's government for being relatively early and vigilant on trying to, you know, set some rules and guidelines about staying safe and healthy. Mm -hmm. The reality is uh, trends actually on the margin were uh, heading better up until more recently, and it talks to the fact that COVID has no boundaries. Yeah. There's, There's no way to prevent it. And let's face it. We're on a pace to have a million cases in the U.S. on a weekly basis at this point, which is a horrible statistic. And so it seems completely rational that the government has to do whatever steps it can within reason to balance safety along with trying to keep people employed and businesses, you know, gainfully working. So we're trying to threaten the needle here, but to the best of abilities, I think the government is striving to have learned from whatever missteps. Uh, may have been made back in April or May, and to the degree we can allow for business activity to persist while maintaining these guidelines, I think we're going to do everything we can to try and let that happen. It's a real challenge, Carol. And this, by the way, this gets back to, I don't know if you saw, but uh, former Fed uh, Governor Bill Dudley came out and said, um, we still need a trillion or two of fiscal stimulus between now and when these vaccines become available. The Fed can only do so much, and it talks to when you have 11 million people unemployed, um, there's just no way to deal with a pandemic, keep businesses fully operational the way they once were, um, and, and expect everything to go well. So, and, and so the implication, Carol, is uh, even though we're going to talk about we've got a V-shaped economic recovery, and this looks like your classic post-recession recovery, this one is a little different. And we mm-hmm. are going to have negative headlines, certainly for the next three to six months, despite the wonderful news from 
Moderna and Pfizer, and, uh, and there will be other vaccines that are likely to also come out and be announced as being effective um, and ultimately safe. Right. Right. We're going to hear from multiple companies right along the way. We knew that. We knew this going in. It's not going to be one magic silver bullet from one company. It's going to be these steps along the way. Having said that, then, um, W Recovery, I hate to do this, play the numbers game. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I've talked to Peter Atwater. I really do. I see that K-shape recovery. That makes a lot of sense to me. But I also do wonder if we get another wave, if we've got to wait until early next year to get some kind of stimulus package. I mean, it's just a long wait. It's a long wait. Here's the thing that it's always a little frustrating to me. Okay. Mm. The market from its bottom, if you look at the S&P 500, is up about 65%. And it took until last week to see record inflows on equities, uh, the kind of inflows we hadn't seen in two decades. Uh, And you have people at firms pounding the table, getting to equities, and my year-end target at the end of next year is 3,900 on the S&P. Well, we're at 3,620. If you add it up, you're talking about a 9% total return from here to the end of next year on that bullish call, which, by the way, I do think, is accurate in that I am optimistic, and that's probably a better return than bonds and cash will give you. But there's so much enthusiasm for this value rotation and get in, and it's all looking good. You're not accounting for the risks. And the other thing is the upside, albeit better than stocks and bonds, it's not as if this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. The easy money's been made. Right. And so I worry about everybody jumping on the bandwagon. The train left the station months ago. You should get on the train, but don't overextend. Don't reach for the high beta, low quality stocks. That's at best a trade. We're still post pandemic in the same plodding, slow growth, debt burdened, aging, developed world population. And in that world of slow growth, I think it's foolish to throw all the growth stocks out the window and conclude you need to be in every cyclical beaten up beta name out there. That is a trade. That's not a long term investment strategy. Well, and that's so, inter- right. I, no, I get where you're yeah. coming from. And, and there is a point where we start to have even more visibility. And at that point, you know, we had uh, Morgan Stanley talking about the world economy on track for a synchronous rebound. I mean, at some point, we do get through this and we start to bounce back. Hey, Ellen, uh, always nice to check in with you. Um, glad you had your Wheaties this morning because I really gave you a big, heavy question right off the top. Alan Zafrin, founding partner and co-CEO at IEQ Capital joining us on the phone from Palo Alto, California. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com. And be sure to check out our daily radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.